Hello? Hi, how you doing? Good, how are you? Good, thanks. Well, thanks for joining me here. I really appreciate it. Oh, you bet. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for asking me. Yeah. Um, so how you doing today? Oh, pretty good. It's Friday. I can't yeah. complain. How about you? I'm doing all right. Yeah, nice. So are and you're you... in Florida, right? Yeah, I'm in the uh, in between Miami and Fort Lauderdale. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the... Uh... I used to live in Fort Lauderdale, yeah. Oh, really? Um, how long ago? Very long ago. Uh, uh, maybe 30 years ago. Okay. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm sure it's still, it was still a crazy place then as it is now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. That whole sort of, that whole strip right there, there's a lot going on. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Old and young and yeah. everything in between. <laughs> so I, I'm wondering if, I, um, because when I, um, somehow I, I saw on your Twitter that you have uh, Ginger, Judge Ginger Loren, uh, Lerner. Yeah. Right. yeah. You I know just, her? Yeah, I just spoke to her yesterday, actually. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, she's very cool. I, I, I don't think we've ever actually met in person, but we uh -huh. communicate a lot. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So you ready to get started here? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I, the thing I like to ask most of the guests here is a, uh, I saw some different quotes that you had that, I, that resonated with me. So any particular quote, I'm sure you can come up with a lot of them, but one quote that sort of guides your work that you do. Um, gosh, yeah, it, I, <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, there's, there's many, um, I think really it's, I don't know if it's a quote as much as a, a saying and I don't actually know where it originated, but just this concept of it's not what's wrong with you. It's what happened to you. Right. Um, just sort of as a guiding philosophy and way of thinking about people and behavior, um, it, has, it really was a huge shift for me personally. Yeah, when did, when would you say that uh, that occurred that that uh, that shift? Honestly, it was not. It was actually around my mid twenties, um, and maybe a little bit later um, than that. But I. Um, I was diagnosed with depression at age seven. I connect. I collected a whole variety of other diagnoses by the time I was an adult. Um, they just kept multiplying and multiplying. And for a long time, I really bought into that um, in the sense that I sort of just saw myself as disordered. I identified with being broken and mentally ill and so just, you know, all of these kinds of um, deficit-based ways I had been taught to look at myself. And it really wasn't until, I'd say, my mid-20s, my early 30s, that I really started to kind of look at what happened to me in my life and many, many other people I'd encountered through kind of a, a social justice lens and a socio-political lens right. um, and a trauma-informed lens. And so it was, to me, it, I was able to kind of let go of that sense of being broken uh, and kind of look at myself as someone who was in the process of healing, uh, which is a very different feeling. It's a different feeling. It's a different way of, of approaching oneself and one's life. Sure. Uh, well, actually, going back to the quote, the, the way the person I've tracked it to, I, I maybe there, there could be other people, but is uh, Sandra Bloom. Oh yeah, I, I believe that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's she's definitely one of the godmothers of this of this movement, no question. Right. Oh, also, but before we also get going more, that if you could just uh, introduce yourself and talk about where you're calling from and what sort of work you're doing these days. Sure. Yes. Um, so I'm Leah Harris. Uh, I live in the Washington D.C. area. Um, I am a trauma survivor, I'm a mother, I'm a storyteller, I'm an advocate. Um, I do uh, a lot of work around training and education around trauma-informed care. I'm also really into um, working with survivors on storytelling and how to sort of rewrite and re-narrate uh, your story, and whether just privately for yourself or um, publicly. Um, so I'm sort of passionate about all those kinds of different threads and ways of, of healing and recovering. 
Yeah, uh, I, I'm wondering what your relationship is to that group, the Digital Storytelling Project. I really liked your video that you had up there. Oh, thank you. Yes, it was, um, I would say, probably around 2008, 2009, I had an opportunity to do a three-day digital storytelling workshop with the Center for Digital Storytelling. Uh, I think they've since changed their names to Story Center or something like that, but it's storycenter.org is their website. And it was such an incredible experience because, you know, I had... I had been used to sort of telling my story verbally, but being able to tie together, you know, have a, a narrative, um, have images, have, you know, music to accompany it and kind of tell my story in a multimedia way and in a concise and brief way. I think my digital story is like under five minutes. Um, it was really freeing. And I, and since then I've, I've been working just informally with other survivors to help them develop their own digital stories uh, but I think it's a really powerful medium, and it's also very empowering for the person creating it. So, you know, unlike, you know, being in a documentary film or something where someone else is filming you, um, and that could be a great collaborative relationship, but with digital storytelling, you're completely in charge of how your story is told. Um, so from a trauma survivor standpoint, it kind of gives you a sense of control uh, and mastery, um, which is is was a hugely he healing experience for me. And one of the things I really connected with your story that I think was very important uh, is how, how you brought up that uh, the, the concept of the intergenerational trauma and how you want sort of your trauma to end uh, with you and not pass it on to the next generation. I wonder if you could speak to that a bit. Yes, um, you know, again, it wasn't until my late twenties, my early thirties that I even kind of started to think about intergenerational trauma and how that looks, how that looked in my family. Um, and it's really just the idea and we're learning more and more that, um, actually what happened to your great grandparents has epigenetic, if you heard of the whole, you know, field of epigenetics that actually affects the way our genes express themselves and can make future generations more vulnerable and kind of less resilient to traumas and difficulties. Um, so the science of it, first of all, is absolutely fascinating. But, uh, you know, from a storytelling perspective, um, it was really eye-opening and enlightening for me to, to kind of delve into my family history. And I'm actually working on a, um, a feature-length uh, solo performance uh, show that is on intergenerational trauma and three generations of women in my family. Um, but, you know, tracing it back, um, you know, my great-grandfather was nearly a, a victim of crime. Um, it, during the pogroms, um, he was almost killed as a, a, a child during the pogroms in Eastern Europe um, when they kind of um, came after Jews and targeted Jews. And there were sort of, I, would, I mean, couldn't call them anything other than acts of terrorism where they would, you know, kill um, children, people of all ages. My great-grandfather, as the story goes, was sitting on a stoop next to a little girl. And he was maybe himself about 10 or 11 years old. And this Cossack rode by on his horse and shot and killed this little girl. And I'm always sort of blown away by that story in more ways than one because I think about, you know, that that whole family line that would have started with that little girl was ended. My great-grandfather was spared, and that's where our, you know, that's as far back as I can trace my family. Um, and then, you know, so he escaped from the, you know, anti-Jewish oppression in Eastern Europe and came to the U.S. and soon enrolled in World War, enlisted in World War One. So more trauma, you know, he's out there sort of fighting a war and violent and bloody war, you know, so he had that kind of experience that he also brought, um, you know, into our family. And, you know, and then there's the coexistence of, of trauma and addiction. So my great grandfather was an incredibly talented person. He was a very um, well known in the Yiddish theater and had a beautiful singing voice. But he was also a violent alcoholic. Uh -huh. And different different members of my 
family, my his children told me that story in different ways. So well, it's Robert, they usually talk about that there's no Jewish, uh, that alcoholism doesn't exist in the Jewish community. <laughs> yeah, and my, my grandmother who raised me, if, if you asked her, and she's passed away, but when I talked to her about it, she's like, my childhood was beautiful, it was perfect, my family was perfect, everything was great, you know. Um, but then when I would speak to her, when I talked to her brother after she passed away, he's like, that's not how I remember it. I remember that our father was violent at times and unpredictable and alcoholic, and it was not the picture that she painted. Um, so it's it's just interesting, you know, I think about how that impacts. And then when you get to my grandparents' generation, that's like the greatest generation, you know, you're stoic, you don't make yourself vulnerable, you just you know, you present a good face to the world. And and then my mother's generation kind of rebelled against that. Um, my mother ran away from our family home in Milwaukee to go to California to be a hippie and, you know, experience the summer of love. And she just kind of resisted that, you know, you don't express yourself. You just kind of pursue the prescribed path that's in front of you. Um, and it ended up, you know, my mother was very vulnerable and um, had a psychotic break and um, was never the same after that. Um, and she was diagnosed with schizophrenia and at a very young age, 18, 19, and, and her life just was this constant downward spiral. Um, and she passed away at age 46. So kind of thinking about the implications of how are patterns passed down in families? How are traumas passed down in families? Um, this is not to blame families. You know, this is every, everyone is yeah I, the best they can. Sure, I, I absolutely agree with that, and I think that was one of the um, I forget exactly the, the history, the years of it, but it, I think it was more in the uh, maybe the sixties and seventies. There was that the then it was framed as that it was you're blaming the parents for for the psychological right. pro psychiatric problems and right. we got away from that and now we're sort of back looking at trauma and i agree it's absolutely it's not everybody's doing the best they can but they're often some people are more evolved and are aware and touch with their history than others and are even some people are aware of it and still can't integrate it and and use it to the to the best they can yeah no i mean i i couldn't agree more you know i think awareness is the first step but awareness doesn't always translate into doing things differently. Right. <laughs> um, that takes just a lot of daily work and persistence and effort and support. Um, but yeah, absolutely. And I think what we're learning from the science is that, you know, in the past we said, oh, it's all nurture. Right. You know, as you said, and then that kind of fell out of vogue and like, oh, no, it's all just biological processes. You right. Know? And then as you know, I mean, we could go to a whole conversation about this, that there's the whole the whole industry around convincing people it's all biological and the, these twin studies and the, the, the pharmaceutical industry and, and whatnot. Yeah, absolutely. And now I think we've really come to the point with the science where we understand it's a very complex and delicate interplay between nature and nurture. Both of these are important. Yeah, uh, but then I think that the, the other problem is, is obviously speaking with you, obviously you can see the complexity of this, and, but there's far more, too many people can't really, aren't able to deal with the ambiguity and the complexity of this stuff and try to speak about it in binary, reactionary ways that... Uh, that isn't uh, scientifically accurate, and it has uh, negative consequences. So, yeah, well, absolutely, and you know, people will be attached to their beliefs. Um, you know, and, and change is not easy for folks to accept, especially the more you know. Dr. Gabor Mate, who does a lot of work on trauma, says the more educated a person is in a field or discipline, um, the the more resistant they are to anything that challenges what they learned. Right, he's one of my you know, favorite guys. I, me too. I, yeah, the uh, well, it's the whole uh, the whole Zen mind, beginner's mind concept that uh, that I think that the uh, you know that the, the it's about trying even the more knowledge you uh, you accumulate, trying to get back to that naive, childlike state of wonder that you're not that you can throw out your beliefs if you get new new information that uh, disproves it. But. Yeah, it's very scary for for people. I think it's a, it's a it's very difficult to practice. 
Um, you know, and I, I, you know, I think I like this idea of holding one's beliefs lightly, <laughs> you know, um, not clinging to them too right. intensely, you know, and I think that that's, that's the way I try to work it, but it's easier said than done, you know, especially if you have a strong emotional connection to certain beliefs. Yeah. yeah. And then or I mean, investment, investment in beliefs. Sure. Yeah. And especially around, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with like in terms of different groups that have, uh, like, I, I, I very much uh, connect with some of the more anti-psychiatry people, but I feel that they can get very too reactionary in one direction, too. So it's just, it's, it's about that, uh, yeah, like you said, cling, holding your beliefs lightly. <laughs> yeah, not easy, not yeah. easy. But uh, so anyway, but in terms of the specific, like, about trying to, uh, your, your process of trying to... Um, being mindful about, I guess, I, I guess one way you could talk about it is conscious parenting and not trying to, and being mindful not to inflict your own history on your your child or children. I have one son. Oh, yes, he's ten son. years old right yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, absolutely. I, you know, I have to be honest. When I when I was in my late twenties, I thought I would never have children because I just didn't. I knew I had had such such a traumatic history. I don't think I trusted myself to be a conscious parent at that time. I, I was I was just afraid that I would just unconsciously act out what had happened to me. I was terrified of that. And so I said to myself, I'm just not gonna have children. And then, you know, life had other plans and I had my son and I really from the moment I found out I was going to be a mother, I just attacked attachment parenting theory. I just read everything I could get my hands on. I just studied it so intensely. Like I just approached it, you know, for those nine months and beyond, you know, just as I must let this philosophy and way of being with children just seep into every cell and pore of my being. Um, and, and I did, I did. And I'm not, you know, everyone parents in the way that makes sense for them. But for me, I'm very much very, very into attachment parenting as a style. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, the other strategy I did was to kind of raise my son the opposite as that I was raised in some ways, <laughs> not in every way, but just kind of do the opposite. Uh, sometimes that worked too. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, I think, you know, and I'm a single parent and, you know, I, I'm always very aware of, again, Gabor Mate talks so much about parental stress. And even if you have all the best intentions in the world to be a conscious parent, you know, kids pick up on parental stress. Yeah, they're yeah. not even aware that they pick up. They pick up, he talks about it, and I think it's true, uh, that they even pick it up in the womb. Yeah, oh yeah, there's no question. Yeah, I've, I've read that whole book, The Secret Life of the Unborn Child, and, you know, and, and I've tried not to make myself I try not to be guilty or feel guilty for just often many times in my life being under enormous amounts of stress because it, it weren't things that I could necessarily control. But, you know, the way I try to raise my child is to just really approach things from a strengths-based perspective. I was raised in a household where everything I did was criticized or viewed as a symptom or you know, there was very little kind of building me up as a child. And so with my son, I just try to do everything I can to just constantly build him up and like encourage him to see and recognize his strengths and, and to not dwell on, you know, what he perceives to be his weaknesses, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and I, I think that that is the piece because I, you know, as a 40 year old, I fight every day to, have a strengths-based attitude towards myself, you know, right. if I can just get him off to a start where he truly sees his goodness, um, sees the beauty in himself, you know, we all have things we need to work on, like, you know, but I'm hoping that I can give, help give him the gift of self-esteem, you know, that will see him through his life, um, because I, you know, that's not something that I got, and here I am, you know, in rapidly, <laughs> you know, in middle age, I'm still working on that, you know, every day. Um, yeah, this is a, something that uh, I, I guess I've been thinking about recently, but uh, for a period of time that uh, 
I mean, since you're actually in the you're at the, in the nation's capital area, I was actually born in the D.C. area. But oh, okay. I, I grew up in Philly, but uh, okay. But um, anyway, uh, that there's been all this talk. Um, this came up with one of my actually my conversation with Judge Ginger yesterday. That there's all this talk about you know providing people with access. And she said that was her her interest, really making sure people have access to care, and I think that's very important. But and funding uh, mental health care and substance abuse services. But I, I think that the conversation that I'm not hearing enough out at the, at the top is, is um, you know, uh, examining what kind of care we're delivering. And, uh, and, and in my opinion, a lot of times the standard of care is, uh, is creating more harm than, than it's helping. Well, I mean, that's a really important point, and, and the, the sort of, in addition to this whole conversation about access, and I know Judge, Judge yeah. Ginger doesn't think this way, but is a, a focus on more access to inpatient hospitalization right. specifically. That's, People are generally not talking about more access to community-based services or, point. you know, social supports. Right. It's really about, <laughs> uh, you know, as, as my colleague beds. Harvey <laughs> Rosenthal says, meds and beds. Right. You know, meds and beds. Yeah. Meds, beds. And look, you know, I I have talked to people who've claimed that the long term hospitalization saved their life. I'm right. not gonna argue with their experience. perception of what helped them. Yeah. Right. But I've also talked to and I've experienced personally a number of people who are very harmed in inpatient settings. Sure. And you're right that that's never part of the dialogue. It's just it's as if inpatient psychiatric hospitalization is like going to this beautiful spa where you know there's gentle fountains and you know it's like everyone's just there to care for you and make you feel nurtured and supported and like that's just not how it goes down and this is not to blame individual providers it is the model of care um, where you know they're most inpatient settings are way understaffed um, so you're dealing with that, you know, they, they don't really have the time to support people individually in the way that would really be helpful. Um, a lot of people say it just feels like another form of prison, you know, and you're just right, kind of there right. doing your time and then yeah, you get and, it. And that's, and I mean, I, you know, and I've encountered a lot of clients, individuals that actually would prefer to go to prison because it's little, generally it's a little bit more transparent that you're here for X amount of time and it's, and, and it's, it's in some ways it has less bullshit to it than, than, the, than, the, than the treatment. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I remember one time, I remember this so clearly having a conversation with my psychiatrist when I was, I was in a long-term residential facility as a, as an adolescent. And I was like, what am I going to get out of here? Yeah, exactly. And it's like, that's <laughs> up to you. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, well I'm ready to go. Yeah, like discharge yeah. me today then if it's up to me. <laughs> right. And he's like, whoa, 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 wait, right. no. You know, it's yeah. like, don't, that's just mind games, exactly. mind games, you know, it's up to you. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Well, then, well, then, but then they, the other thing, way that they also often flip it is that it's, it's uh, you know, it's up to the treatment team, it's up to your clinician, and, and the fact of the matter is, in the, today's day and age, it's often up to the, the, the days allotted by the managed care company. Of course, yeah, and it, it's always been that way to yeah. some extent. I mean, I remember as a kid, you know, it was like over 20 years ago, being told, yeah, you know, pretty much no matter what you do, you'll be discharged when your insurance runs out. Yeah. No matter what happens, you know, whether you're better, whether you're not better, you know. Yeah, yeah. no, and I think that that is, that, you know, that's kind of what's behind a lot of this legislation or proposed um, provisions in mental health legislation to eliminate the uh, IMD exclusion, which restricts access to um, freestanding psychiatric institutions um, in Medicaid. Uh, you know, it scares me. I don't think it's going to happen because of the price tag. Um, but, you know, and I do understand if people are going through medication changes, you know, 72 hours isn't always going to cut it. You know, I understand, you know, people might be dealing with really serious crisis, um, but can we think of other models? And lots of people have thought of other models to support they, people in crisis. And there's a lot of evidence that shows that they work. And, and, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, exactly. But, but we're... But we're, just, but we're uh, we're silencing those voices, and that's that's what I. Um, They're so on the fringe of yeah. the mainstream right now. Unfortunately. A lot of the stuff is so simple, though. It's not like it's really um, 
esoteric, complicated, weird interventions, the, the stuff that really works. No, it's, <laughs> it's, it's kind of what I talked about is like sort of how people are talking about hospitals, you know, as these incredibly nurturing places of healing, which yeah. I'm sorry, they're not, um, you know, but there, yeah, there's, you know, I mean, you know about all of this, you know, crisis respite, um, you know, there's, there's places where people in crisis are in sort of like a natural setting, yeah. like, you know, on a farm or, you know, there's just all different models for people to get support and, and connect with, um, what is driving the crisis. Well, I just heard recently that they're going to opening up a, uh, or starting a pilot program of open dialogue in uh, Vermont, mm -hmm. which is great. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as long as we continue to focus on crisis, 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 we're going to have a crisis-driven system, and we're going to have people who are just racked by crisis, you know, that cycle, which I saw my mother go through. I mean, this is not an abstract discussion for me, um, but, you know, I think if we can really start focusing, that's why I like open dialogue, that it, it really focuses on prevention, it focuses on the whole family rather than just the person exhibiting right. symptoms. Um, you know, that's those intergenerational, multi-generational approaches to me are really where it's at. And so rarely because of how, you know, insurance, you know, reimbursement, payment streams, you know, you have your child system, you have your adult system. Da -da -da. Yeah, and then you also have, um, I mean, it feeds into this, the business of everything, that, that <laughs> it's, uh, and, you know, for, for my, I mean, I have my own, personal experience of some of this stuff too and working in the field is that um, that, that generally parents uh, of, of loved ones are going to say oh so and so you know that he needs to get help he has a disease or he's an, an addict and it's this cultural narrative these, these cultural narratives also shape the or collective narratives the way we talk about it as the public also shape this these practices yeah oh yeah no question about it and I think, yeah, we have, the pendulum has swung too far the other way, like just as we mentioned earlier from, you know, the schizophrenic, whatever, mother. yeah, whatever that's called, the schizophrenogenic mother, to, no, it's all in this, this yeah. person's child's biology or adult child's biology and no connection to what happened in this family, you know, or what, you know, the dynamics of this family. Um, yeah, and it's unfortunate, um, and it's it's very difficult to talk about this stuff. I mean, and again, Gabor Mate says, "I will give a talk, and I will start the talk off saying, I am not here to blame parents. I'm not here to shame parents. I'm not here to make parents feel badly." And then somebody will inevitably say, "You're blaming the parents." You know, uh -huh. how do you how do you open these conversations in a way that doesn't cause people to feel defensive and deepen divides? I haven't found the answer. I mean, it's like well, you have the anti-psychiatry yeah. over here and like the people who are, you know, supporting forced psychiatric care over here. There's like this million mile divide yeah. between them and antagonism and hostility yeah. and ugliness and, I think a lot of it has to come to like how you said is people need to be able to do their own work and you can't and one of the other other things since you're mentioning him and I love him too that Gabor Mate also talks about is that you know you can't force people to work on their own trauma history no matter how relevant it is they have yeah. to be willing to accept it when the time's right and that's is that when you're going to force it upon them they're going to react to it like you're forcing a drug upon them that they don't want want to take. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I love his talk on what, how or why capitalism makes us sick. Yeah, I do too. Because sometimes, you know, there's, it's not even that there's abuse or the kind of traumas that we would think of as trauma, but sometimes it's just the rat race of trying to take care of your family, having to work multiple jobs. You know, he talks about this, um, you know, long hours, not being present for your children, you know, you're, you're, drop your child off at 7 a.m., pick them up at 6.30. Yeah. This is not abuse or neglect in the way that we think of it, but it's, it, it impacts families. It impacts children. Um, you know, so I think about it from that perspective, too, is that it's like this was sort of the first awakening that I had. It's like there's nothing wrong with me. You know, the system is bleepity bleep messed up <laughs> you know yeah um, but then, but then, uh, then, then if you maybe i agree with that but then if you maybe go in that realm no then 
then people will throw the labels on you. Oh, you're a socialist or, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would, I would wave that flag, yeah. <laughs> that whole other conversation, but, but no, but there's, there are just basic issues the way our culture and society function and operate, you know, that, that are troubling and traumatic, you know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, definitely. I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with it. Uh, one of the great studies that really, really sheds light on this issue is the, uh, the WHO World Health Organization's international study for uh, on schizophrenia, which shows yes. they have better outcomes in more collectivist uh, developing countries than they do in the U.S. or the U.K., Canada. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we have gotten so far away. They, they you know, this whole thing of it takes a village. Yeah. That's not just a saying. Like, it actually literally does take a village. And I remember reading somewhere that humans do best in communities of around 150 people, you know, where people know you, where you feel connected. You know, this is not the world we live in. I mean, unless you're in some tiny, small town in the middle of nowhere. But um, we've gotten so far away from our natural roots of how we've lived as human beings for centuries um, in this sort of like modern era that is, um, you know, I think really causing immense amounts of toxic stress. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, uh, like you said, you, you were in uh, South Florida about is it 30 years ago. How long ago? But it's just a very, I've been really thinking of itching to get out of here because it's just a very toxic place as far as I'm concerned that it's, just uh, like, I mean, obviously court, court uh, environments are particularly toxic, but you walk around. Uh, I was at the, the Broward County Courthouse yesterday when I met mm -hmm. with Ginger. Mm -hmm. And you just walk around all the staff there and the lawyers, they, all the women, they just have this bitch face, constant bitch face walking around. And just you feel the hate there. I mean, I know lo the law, the people that go into the field are not the most empathic, nurturing people, but... I just feel there are other parts of the country you walk around that people have a little bit of a different uh, parts of the world that aren't so hateful. It's just it's a, it's a very, unfortunately, hateful place. Here. See, that, that totally destroys my theory that people who live near water are happier. Yeah. That, that, I've been operating on that theory for a while now because I came from California and I felt like people were much happier. Right. Like they just, not even happier, but just ni nicer, just treated each other with more respect and kindness overall. Yeah. And when I came uh, to DC, I was like, wow, like everybody hates everyone. Yeah. I mean, like, I would think that is true to California, but it's not because of the water. It's for, for other reasons. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I, I sort of thought, well, if you live in like a setting where there's more sunshine and water yeah. and night, you know, environmentally, it's, well, there was a, there was a journalist that actually, that, uh, I think he's a journalist, that wrote this great book sort of examining kind of that phenomenon. It was called The Geography of Bliss. Mm. And he was actually from Miami and talked about how people aren't very happy there. But, uh, but it's an interesting read that uh, talks about this um, happiness from a sociological standpoint and, and examining. And it really comes down to a lot of those things that like uh, in places that have a different community sense of, different way impl policies implemented and, and stuff that they're more happy. Like one of the things that they talked about was, is I remember, I think it was in Switzerland that mm -hmm. I haven't been there, but they talked about that. Yeah. People just like to spend time in cafes and just sort of be and connect. And they're not as, you know, that's not all it's as capitalistic, always having to, to be busy trying to do something. Well, exactly. No, and I think you're making a really good point about policy affecting well-being. You know, I mean, I am always like angry and resentful. I know Europe has its problems. I'm very aware of them, but I've always been very angry and resentful that I wasn't born European because, you know, you got six weeks of vacation. I know that that's been eroded over time. You know, all of these things are yeah. generalizations, but you have amazing um, family leave you know, parental leave policies, you know, here in the U.S., like a lot of parents go back to work like two weeks after having a kid because you have to, yeah. you know, um, just these really wonderful family friends. Oh, like free um, child care, you know, here in D.C., child care, it's like $30,000 a year for pre-K, you know, like, right. Or, you know, I mean, it's just outrageous. It's like sending your kid to college, you know, and they just have these beautiful family-friendly policies. Yeah. 
that really I think do support well-being and like yeah. One of the things that they talked about in the book that was actually in, in the country, Bhutan. Yes. They talked about that they actually have like a, you know, we have the, uh, what is it, the GDP, the growth, the yeah. national, or G, what is it, the G something P, growth, the GDP, GDP something yeah. like that. But they have the, 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 the happiness version of that, that they have, they're, they're, they're trying to gauge the, the collective happiness of the group. I love that. Yeah. I love that. You know, I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I really do believe that so much of this does have to do with policy and and practice and just really understanding um, child development, yeah. frankly, you know, like what is necessary for kids to develop and how to support parents, you know, to, to you know, really break the cycle. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I really want to address is this, uh, going back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier, is the... Um, uh, when I was bringing up the whole access versus the type of care, but I think one of the biggest issues, and I, I think you would, from what I read about you and talking to you, uh, you in terms of this whole medication thing is, uh, I mean, I, I agree with you that if, if people benefit from, from psych hospitalization or uh, medication, psychiatric medication, that's fine, but I think people should have informed consent and be able to refuse it and have choice and also be informed and I'm talking about informed consent where they actually know the, 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 the real true dangers of, of these substances and the, the possible benefit. Be Just given the, the, the accurate information, be able to choose. Well, sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then so often that doesn't happen. And then, you know, people have spent years and decades and it's, you know, on a whole variety of different drugs, and it's it then becomes extremely difficult to get off. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm talk. I was talking to a friend yesterday whose daughter was going through this. Like, any medication changes just kick her over the edge. Like, her body is so sensitive to any of this. Like, she's trying to reduce, and it's having horrible consequences for her. You know, mm -hmm. she's like becoming, you know, psychotic, and um. It's, it's, you know, I really do think it is from the get-go, you know, it, I, that's why I, I kind of, you know, these early uh, intervention for psychosis programs, they're kind of all over the place, but I do like the idea that it's like, it's considered to be, you know, a low dose for a very short period of time, you know, that this is not, you know, my mother was told, and it was the case, that you have to be on these drugs for your whole life. Right, and that that's still, I mean... I worked at the state hospital in Florida in 2000, around 2012, and they were still pushing that agenda. And I, I really don't think much has changed since then. No, but, uh, no. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I, I also uh, think there needs to be uh, policies in play to prevent this kind of behavior. To me, it's just wrong. To the psychiatrist, I'm sure you've probably interfaces either directly yourself or from other stories that the psychiatrists tell people that you'll never get better, that you have a brain disease like diabetes, and maybe you'll be, you'll be able to be like a bagger at a grocery store, but you'll never have a regular good job or have a, a real great relationship, and that's just the way it is. Yeah, basically, you know, I don't know if I can say this, but yeah, your life is fucked. Yeah. Essentially, <laughs> you can cut that out if you want. Um, but no, I mean, it's like, oh, that's hopeful. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate that. Um, you know, yeah. And, I, you know, it saddens me. And I know that it is true that people are continue to be told this today. Um, because, yeah, I was told that. I was told um, you need to be in a group home for the rest of your life. I mean, how ridiculous is that compared to I was where? Eighteen years old. Yeah, but the other thing is how ridiculous it is is that if we talk about it, even if if you say it is a brain disease, if you just we'll, we'll try to take the point that it's a brain disease, we know still compared to the rest of the uh, the human organism, we know so little about the brain. But we, we one of the things we do know about the brain is that compared to some other systems, it it has one of the most remarkable capacities to regenerate and heal to a very old age. So it's so absurd, these, these, these messages, these negative yeah. messages. It really is, you know, it's, it's pseudoscience because, yeah. yeah, what we know about neuroplasticity and, you know, all of that, nobody should be getting those kinds of messages. And even if, even if it was a fixed and static brain disease, like people can still live good lives with all manner of diseases. 
That's like, true. you know, like, why are we not encouraging people to live the best life they can with what they have? You know, I just don't. This is why I'm a big fan of just strengths based approach. You know, why are we coming at all this so heavily focused on deficits? And it's not to deny them or gloss over the difficulties. But, you know, I really do believe in the power of suggestion. Yeah. And especially when it's coming from an authority figure like a psychiatrist or like a teacher or a parent, you know, that is telling you this is your lot in life and it will never be any different. You know, how can you how can you go against I mean, there's very few people who are going to completely disregard that. It's going to seep into you and it's going to affect you. Right. right. And uh, related, I mean, I saw some a few of the uh, one of the guys I really like in terms of human rights. And I, he's just such a remarkable um, icon legend, uh, Mar Dr. Martin Luther King, and I saw you had some good quotes from him that uh, are, are guiding you, that, uh, that whole idea of the, the creative maladjustment, so you're, you're familiar with that? Uh, Absolutely. And uh, yeah, I mean, I really think that's a beautiful thing, that concept. I was wondering what your, what your take is on that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and I, you know, tell this story that um, when I was locked up in that residential treatment center, you know, and told, um, you know, like, yeah, you're, you have five different diagnoses. Here's all the drugs you need to be on. Like, you know, you need to keep talking about just being therapy, you know, just whatever they tell you in the institution. But I saw one of the films of John Waters, um, which I believe it was Hairspray or Crybaby. And he was the first adult to ever validate being outside the norm, being your own person, being eccentric, fighting the power, um, you know, just, just, just being out there, being real, you know. And, and that to me was more therapeutic than anything that had happened to me in that year that I was locked up was just getting that message from John Waters that, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it is okay to be who you are, no matter how freaky you are, no matter how outside the norm you are, this is something to be celebrated, not squashed. Yeah. And, and I, and I feel like that was something that like, you know, Dr. King was saying too, is that, is that, yeah, your maladjustment is a natural response. You know, or, uh, Krishnamurti, you know, says it's no measure of health to be adjusted to a profoundly sick society. Right. You know, I'm, now I'm thinking of quotes, of course. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, so it's, it's sort of like we can celebrate that neurodiversity, eccentricity, whatever you want to call it, um, that there's not one way to be human. And why are we not encouraging this and, and celebrating this and allowing for the range of ways that, that we can be human? Yeah, and uh, I mean, the way I see it is, unfortunately, when you talk, the, the, the structures and the people that, that are still in power, I feel, are just so uh, rigid and resistant to change. I mean, the way I really see it is that, I mean, uh, uh, I mean, there's a great, obviously, this movement is sort of growing these alternative viewpoints on it, which a lot of them, if, like we were talking before, if you really examine them, they... They really shouldn't be that alternative because they're not really that radical. They're just—they're actually grounded in, you know, huge swaths of human history. Yeah. You know, that, <laughs> that some like newfangled thing. Um, and one of the things that I've also found working in the field, which is frustrating, is that uh, I think that this is a, something that I've seen that's problematic. Is that sometimes people, when you when you're using these fancy. Uh, terms that are often meaningless in pseudoscience people think you're more intelligent and, and and sophisticated and if you're you're basically just preaching about the things that really help people like love compassion empathy and and listening to people and they, they think you're just you're you're not you're not smart or you're too you're gonna get laughed out of the room yeah really or and, just or just seen as a fringe person right um <laughs> Yeah, because everything has become so professionalized and so medicalized. Exactly. And we have to talk about everything in these sort of detached clinical ways. Um, I don't know who that's serving. I'm not really sure. It's serving the people in power, I mean. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's not serving the provider. It's not serving the person who's, you know, actually receiving services. Um, but, yeah, and you know, I think we are dealing with a lot of, dinosaur systems and ways of being that are destructive and, and that I hope 
that I will see them start to shift and crumble. I don't know if it's going to happen in my lifetime. Yeah, I mean, I, I really feel strongly like like when your when your son is an adult. I feel when, once those people become in, in power, I think things will be totally different. I think a lot of people, unfortunately, have to die to, for things to really change. I would agree with that. Yeah. You know, and I do a lot of work in systems. I do yeah. a lot of work in systems, and overwhelmingly people go into this work because they care right you don't go into mental health for the money or the prestige i mean maybe some people do but for the most part you're going in because either you've been affected personally or someone you love like you're going in from this good place and then the system is just set up for you to fail and burn out and and just be completely overcome by compassion fatigue yeah. and you know and so it it, it just it hurts everybody. It's not, it's not just the people using services, it's the people providing services. Um, and within that, you know, you just, you try to make inroads where you can. I mean, I'm thankful that there are some systems and organizations and agencies that are open to learning and to changing and to doing things differently. Well, what have you found some of those ones uh, that you've been in contact with from your experience? What have I found? No, which are some of those places? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, one example that, you know, one organization that I've worked with um, is um, Seattle Counseling Services in Seattle, obviously Seattle, uh, Washington. Yeah. Um, it's the oldest LGBT serving social service agency in the world, I believe. Um, and they, ha they just have this whole organizational commitment to trauma-informed care, um, social justice. You know, they're really... They, they basically operate according to values that play out in everything from how they hire, how they do orientations, how they work with people. You know, um, it's a values-driven right. agency, which I think is beautiful because this is about values, like those values and, and ways of working with people that'll get you laughed out of the room, um, but about love and compassion and service, right. all those kinds of things. Um, so that's one example. Um, Another example is the um, Virginia Co uh, Commonwealth Center for Children and Adolescents, um, who has also made this commitment to becoming much more values-based. You know, and so when the kids enter this facility, instead of you know being like, "What's your diagnosis? What are your symptoms?" they ask them, "What do you value and what do you love?" And sometimes kids have never been asked these questions. Yeah, usually, usually, if someone, probably particularly a kid who's been in the system for a while, that that sort of trips them up, and they're they're, they're like. <laughs> What? You know, and they have um, animal assisted therapy, which has been so helpful for the kids just to have this huge Bernese mountain dog, you know, that they can hug. And the dog has values too, like love and cuddles and hugs. And, you know, like, you know, so it's like shifting from this, you know, what's wrong with you again to like what, what matters? What, what do you care about? What do you love? You know, and the staff have done this too. So everybody has their like values written out. And that's, you know, this is, these are just the beginnings of changes. And, and, you know, obviously it's not easy for children to be locked up. And I don't really, in general, like, I hope that that could be avoided at any cost, but doing whatever you can to soften the impact of that, you know, being deprived of your freedom and your family, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they really care and they're really trying, you know, to do things differently with the kids. Um, but yeah, you know, I think the problem is though, and this is something I talk about a lot is that even if you have an agency like the ones that I talked about, you know, that are really trying hard. Oh, the University of um, California, San Francisco um, Women's HIV Program. That's another example of a very trauma-informed agency. And this is something that Dr. Mochtinger, who runs the agency, talks about too. You can have the most trauma-informed agency in the world and you're like doing everything right and you're treating people with dignity, you're treating people with respect, you're addressing their issues holistically but they're they're going to interact with other systems yeah. that are not trauma informed. Very rarely do people just interact with one system. There's usually multiple systems that people are you know connecting to. So you can do your little part, but then there's the rest of that big bad world out there, you know. And and I I think that is that's sort of where the rub is and where the challenge lies. That I really think just everything needs to crumble. <laughs> like, yeah, it just does. need to like start over and just completely revolutionize the way we, we deal with health in general. Yeah. Mental, physical, whatever. But our whole healthcare system is just not set up to foster health. Like that's, 
Yeah, it's a, no, it's not. I mean, it's it's about treating a, uh, prolonging, you know, the chronic disease paradigm is, is really what it's focused on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I don't know if or when we'll see that, if it'll be in our lifetime or not, but, um, you know, I think within it, you just try to impact in what positive ways you can. A any other, any particular uh, projects you have going on now? Um, yeah, you know, I mean, I think for now I'm, I've been very focused on this, um, solo performance show that I'm working on. Yeah, where, yeah you mentioned that. Where I'm going to be performing it. It's called Miss, Misdiagnosed. Oh, cool. Um, uh, and I'm going to be performing it at the Capitol Fringe Festival here in DC in July. Um, but assuming and hoping that that goes well, I'd really love to take it on the road. And wherever I go to, like, work with um, trauma survivors or people with mental health issues or histories on um, how can we use theater and performance and storytelling to heal. Um, there's a lot of research and evidence to show that it does help people heal. And I know just yeah. from my life that, you know, that, that power of reclaiming your story, like I said earlier, and, and taking ownership of it and turning what happened to you into art um, is incredibly healing. Yeah. Um, so I would love to be able to do workshops with people and kind of just help share what I've learned along the way. Uh, do you um, have you? Do you ever see this uh, guy's um, story of Matthew Puritan on Mad in America? I don't believe I have. Yeah. But he's a guy that I, I worked with for a little bit at this counseling mm -hmm. center in Philadelphia, and. Uh, He's just a remarkable um, man. He's a therapist and uh, has a, a real immense sort of, uh, he was born with this really w rare genetic disorder where he was born without any arms and mm. hands. Mm -hmm. And uh, But he's making this um, uh, performance, theatrical performance about his story and working on that now. It's just a really interesting, uh, just a really interesting guy and it's uh powerful story. Mm. Okay, and he's on Mad in America? Yeah, he did gotcha. a blog post and has a video. He has a, I don't know if he closed it, he had like a Kickstarter campaign raising money for his, uh, this performance he's doing. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, I'm just, I'm kind of becoming lower and lower tech as I go along. I just sort of, like, how can we embrace these sort of traditional ways that people have healed and expressed themselves for centuries? Um, and how can we bring these back into the, the realm? You well, know? if you saw this, it was a great uh, this, uh, study that they, they were promoting on uh, social media about uh, that uh, basically, I mean, it makes sense. You don't really need a study to do it. But the way we are now, we need studies and measure things that drumming, uh, like drum circles, actually re re alleviate anxiety and depression. Well, yeah, and you know, I went to a workshop with um, Bessel van der Kolk, and yeah, it, it's sort of how he described it is that anything that's like left-right movements, kind of moving both sides of the body in synchrony with others, it's really that act almost of being synced up with other people. And also the, the, something I think also... And the rhythm. The, and yeah. the rhythm and the repetition yeah. helps Absolutely. the brain sort of... To, to yeah, know. and but, you know, dance can also yeah. serve that purpose. Like just the rhythmic, repetitive, but also just being in community. Yes. Something about that. So it's like a drum circle. It's not just... I mean, yeah, people might enjoy, like, drumming alone in their basement, like, you know, yeah. whatever, but it's like... It is that also that community piece that is so central to it as well. Um, so, you know, I find this fascinating. I think theater comes into this too. Like solo performance, yeah, you have the interaction between you and the audience and you're kind of having a temporary community there. But with, you know, productions with multiple people, everybody is needed to pull it off. You know, it's just, it, it's like, it's that sense of like the parts and the whole, you know, fit together and inform each other. Um, so I love that. I love that idea of like, how can we heal in community with others? And it's not always like your self-care, focus on yourself, yeah. you know, fix yourself, you know, that we can actually care for one another in, in a whole variety of ways. Yeah, actually, well, specifically, I, I, I don't know if I saw it on your Facebook, there was somebody from... Um that was involved with some trauma-informed community thing in D.C. And Michelle, I think, or Jackson or something. Or... Yeah, yeah, no, and I think that that's kind of a, 
little, it's sort of a movement that's happening in different places. Yeah. So there's this trauma-informed DC initiative that I've been involved in. Um, there's ones popping up. One of them actually is the first one that Tarpon I've Tarpon Springs. Tarpon Springs. Yeah. yeah Have you ever know, been there? I haven't, although I hope to visit. Um, I'd like to go back and really talk to the people. I spoke to Robin Sanger before oh, yeah. who created uh -huh. it or was the, yeah. the charge of it. But uh, I just went there one a couple of weeks ago. Actually, you probably know him too, that he, he did this conference in Tampa. Peter Bregan organized it. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, while I was there, I, I thought Tarpon Springs wasn't that far. I had dinner there. It's, it's a cool town, though. It's a lot of uh, big Greek population there, actually. That's what I've heard, and it's a very sort of – They've been there for some some generations yeah. now, which is, and I think that does make it easier in a way when you already have like a close, somewhat close knit. Right, city. it's not that big. It's really right. small. Uh, but you know, they they've been trying to do this in lots of different places, or they've been trying to do it on the school level, or um, you know. But I think I think trauma informed community is often about sort of changing again the sort of systems change piece, which is really important. Um, but I'm also kind of about how, you know, the healing, how are, how can we heal together in different ways? You know, it's, it's like, there's sort of, I won't say they're two different things, but they're slightly different. Like you're trying to change what is versus let's build something new, if that makes sense, or let's rediscover something old. Um, yeah. I forget, I forget what they, um, they told when I was speaking to Robin about it, that she said that that was, that the trauma-informed community, that was the initial step. But then, I forget, she, she, um, she used another term to actually, actually, but healing the trauma, that was sort of further along the path. Like, how do you... Yeah, right. And, you know, we, we throw that word resilience around a lot. Um, and I, I think it is important to foster resilience. But I think often it can be like, learn to be resilient in the face of overwhelming oppression and cope with it and suck it up and... Yeah. You know, you have to work 15 hours a day, you know, here's this yoga class that'll help you deal with it, you know, rather than sort of looking at, well, are there some, are there some underlying issues that might be contributing to Well, this? like you said, the systems piece, <laughs> the, the, that's, yeah. that systemic oppression and yoga is not going to address that. It's just not. It's, it's just not, you know, it might help you to like cope in an unbearable situation. It might give you a little extra tool there, but you know, I'm, I'm like, let's, let's go beyond resilience and really talk about, about healing and how can we heal in toxic environments? Can we, um, can we heal in should toxic? Should we have to? <laughs> should we have to is really the question. It, yeah. I don't, I don't have the answers to any of this. I really don't, but they're questions I've just been grappling with for a long time. Now. Yeah. I know. I want to ask you, did you ever meet this guy that he is from that whole, the whole uh, sort of community, uh, Ross McKenzie? Did you ever meet him? I saw his film. Yeah. Um, yeah, he has a very interesting journey. Um, but I haven't actually, I don't believe we've actually met in yeah, person. Yeah, well, I connected with him because his mother-in-law happens to uh, live in Florida and he did a showing of the film down here. Okay, so, uh, yeah. Yeah, no, but I, you know, I, I love that his journey took him to really explore traditional modalities and, you know, I believe he got connected with shamanism. Yeah. Am I right about that? Yeah. Um, you know, people dismiss all of this as like woo woo, like new agey stuff. But I just, I really contend that it's not new age. It's really old. old. <laughs> it's really old. And if you understood that, you would be less likely to sort of dismiss it, um, you know, and, and laugh at it or claim that this is, you're an anomaly. If that stuff helped you, you're an anomaly or whatever, you know. Yeah. Exactly. Well, but in a lot of ways, what they're doing isn't any more uh, uh, less scientific than the psychiatrist feels. No, well. no, exactly. <laughs> Did you see that article, What a Shaman Sees in a Mental Hospital? I think I, I did see it. I don't remember. Yeah, I, I came across it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, no, it is. It's to me. I'm. I'm like the older I get, the more interested I'm getting in this stuff, and it, it can kind of be in the mainstream circles, like in D.C. This there's not. There's not a big interest in alternative healing or no. you know, like it's just it's sort of about you know taking care of business, getting things done. Um, but I just feel like the older I get, the more attracted I am to really looking at things from a spiritual perspective. Um, 
you know, really understanding our experiences through energetic lenses, you know, all this stuff that just kind of get you laughed out of the room. I well, find more interesting. I, I, think, I think it's great, but I, I guess I, they're just the voice of, of the reason, which does find me frustrating about that, which I do see in this kind of community too, is that like, for example, just to give you a little bit of perspective in Florida, one of this, this really big, uh, sort of a yoga type ashram place that's locally that they're one of the the founders of it was running a ponzi scheme to uh to, to fund their yoga retreats so so this oh yeah, yeah. no and there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of hucksterism yeah, and a I lot know. of i mean i agree with you like if you look at the range of people who are taking advantage of folks in distress yeah, it's huge. is amazing. It's huge. It goes, it spans everywhere from like the mainstream mental health system to, to like the all these like, people. gurus and yogis and life coaches yeah. and, you know, all of these people who are profiting off of misery. Um, I do think within that there are some folks who are the real deal, yeah. um, you know, and that aren't in this to kind of become rich or, whatever have a guru complex i think there are some genuine healers that can be trusted but being able to separate that from the whole world of bs that's out there you know i'm i'm not naive to that no yeah. I, I could tell you yeah you, you wouldn't, you, I wouldn't pay, you wouldn't pay. yeah no it's i mean and it is yeah it's it's astounding it's really astounding you know that you can just get overwhelmed by the number the options the, the people, the courses, the classes, it's just like, you know, if I was in crisis, I wouldn't know what the hell to do. There's just way too many options out there, yeah. which is a good thing in one way, but it can be really overwhelming in another. Yeah. Well, anyway, well, thanks a lot for uh, taking the time to chat with me today. I really appreciate sure. it. And uh, if you have any closing uh, thoughts you want, want, want to uh, leave. Um, yeah, no, this is, it's been a really great conversation. Um, if people want to, um, you know, reach me or stay in touch, um, I don't know if you'll be posting my website, but it's, it's leahidaharris.com. You can contact me through there. Um, and yeah, it's just, it was really great talking with you and, um, yeah, I appreciate what you're doing. Yeah. I'd like to, uh, possibly catch your performance this summer. Oh, cool! Thank you. Yeah, I don't have my dates yet. It'll be sometime in July, but I'll I'll start once I know. I'll be able to start kind of sharing that. All so right. I appreciate that. Thank you. You're welcome. Have a great day. Thank you. <laughs> have a good weekend. Bye.